Hey, this is David Ellison from Megadeth, and you are here with Iron City Rocks. Hey, all you rockers out there, this is Oz Fox, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, everybody, this is Michael Sweet from Striper, and you are listening to Iron City Rocks. Welcome to episode 373 of the Iron City Rocks podcast, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. I'm your host, John. All right, in this episode, we have got two uh, very special guests, both from the city of Boston, ironically. Uh, We have joining us on the line Michael Sweet of the band Striper, who will be coming in to do a show at Jarwell's on May 10th. We also have joining us guitarist Phenomenon, Johnny A., who will be doing a show at the Club Cafe on the 24th, an Iron City Rock show, that is. So first we're going to talk to Michael Sweet, um, Striper, just very uh, recently on the 20th of uh, April, released Goddamn Evil, their latest album on Frontiers Records. Uh, Kind of a controversial title. Uh, A lot of people are kind of uh, up in arms over the controversial Striper record. But honestly, if you listen to the lyrical content of the song, it's still very much in line with the uh, types of subject matter that they've been singing about all along. So uh, don't let the hype fool you if you're a fan of uh, traditional Striper with those uh, kind of searing high vocals, uh, the lyrical content you've come to expect, and uh, the snarling kind of Jackson guitar sound that we talk about in the interview. You're going to love the record. So we're going to play you a, a little bit of a track uh, that we talk about in the interview. It's called Take It to the Cross. Uh, it's got some really cool uh, different vocals for Striper. It's probably the one song on the album that I think sounds different, but the lyrics are certainly very much, again, in the same format they always sang. On. So uh, nothing unusual there. So we'll play a little bit of Take It to the Cross, and we'll get into that interview with Michael Sweet. Sweet of the Mighty Striper. How are you doing this morning, Michael? I'm doing good, man. I, I like that phrase, the Mighty Striper. I'm going to have to use that. <laughs> Trademark patent pending, yes. <laughs> yeah. 
But um, you guys are, are um, about to come into our fair city to do a show at Jurgles in Warrendale on May 10th. Uh, but kind of foremost on my mind is the release of the new album, uh, Goddamn Evil, which is going to be out, um, if I'm not mistaken, is it later this month, early next month? It's a street it, date. Um, the street date is uh, April 20th. 20th, okay. I knew so, it was sometime so between. So it's, it's coming up. It's less than two, well, about two weeks away. This this coming Friday, tomorrow is two weeks away. And, uh-huh. um, man, we're really excited. And it, I can't believe how fast the time goes because, I, it, you know, four months ago I, we started talking about it, and here we are. Yeah, and it, it's uh, certainly, I think, is a, is a very... Um, Representative, uh, you know, for the fans, it's got some some new twists. I've I've actually read people referring to it as controversial, which I I don't know that I necessarily get listening to the lyrics and reading, you know, the lyrics that there's anything truly controversial. But have you been kind of surprised by some of the attention the album has been getting in that regard? Well, I mean, surprised in a good way. I mean, we knew. I think the the controversial part of it is the title. Mm-hmm. You know, and we knew that it would be. I don't know that it is so much so on the mainstream side, but certainly on the Christian side of our fan base, mm-hmm. which is a good amount. You know, probably sure. half. Um, there, a lot of them are up in arms about the title because they feel that it's it's blasphemous or it's mm-hmm. a swear or taking God's name in vain or what have you. And it's none of the above. I mean, mm-hmm. we, my brother, threw the title out a few years ago. We didn't go with it because we felt like it wasn't the right time. Right. And then you fast forward to 2017, and all the stuff that we see, uh, the Las Vegas shooting uh, at that time was the most recent, and we just felt like, man, it just seems to be escalating in terms of the height and the level of evil that we see mm-hmm. on our news, on the internet, what have you, and we felt like it was a great time to release such an album with such a statement. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, and it, it, it's a prayer request, really, just us asking God to damn evil, you know, do away with this this evil that we see every day. Mm-hmm. I found the the um, the cover artwork especially interesting. You've got kind of, unless I'm totally mistaken, Moses kind of coming through Wall Street, um, you know, which kind of, you know, harkens back to, you know, Moses leading the uh, Israelites out of Egypt. Um, it was kind of an interesting uh, title. Did you were you involved a lot with the art in the cover, or, or how does that come? We to were. Play? I mean, we gave him some ideas of what we wanted to do. It's supposed to be God, not Moses. Oh, but, okay. Uh, it, it's a, that's okay. But it, it, I get it. It does. It looks like it could be Moses. Some people have said it looks like it could be uh, Zeus. Some people have said it could be uh, who's the god of the sea. Um, oh, yeah, that's um, the, whoever the Greek god of the sea. Yeah, is. I'll take. Uh, uh-huh. it, it, you know, and then and some people have said it looks like New York. It's not. It's not New York, but it, it, it's a big city. Sure. Uh, the, Times Square, whatever other city, and you know, God's coming back, just basically slamming his staff down mm-hmm. on the ground and saying, "I've had enough." Mm-hmm. You know, and then you see all the uh, things around that he's had enough of, such as you know, pornography, the love of money. Uh, the love of food, the idolatry, you know, all, all this stuff going on. Right. That, you know, God must be sitting up there shaking his head at because we, we seem to overindulge and we never have enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think the they cover does, even though I totally missed the the figure. But, I mean, you're, you've certainly represented all of that in the image. Now, when you when you put the needle on the record, so to speak, um, Take of the Cross comes at you like, uh, you know, 
like a painkiller from a Judas Priest sort of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, that was actually the first thing I thought. I was like, boy, he's kind of channeling his inner Rob Halford on this song. Now, I know uh, you've got some help on the vocals there. Can you talk about the decision to go in that direction vocally, you know, both the, the screams and the growls? And Sure. Uh, we, we've been asked many times over the years by a number of fans to do something heavy that mm-hmm. bordered on thrash. Mm-hmm. And that was basically our answer to that. You know, we wanted to do it. We we had thought about doing it on the last album, even, and mm-hmm. uh, something that was just real, you know, just different for us. It went somewhere else. Uh, Take it to the cross is the, is the solution to that and for that. Uh, when I was writing the song, I, I just kind of as the, I wrote the chorus, mm-hmm. I was thinking of someone else to come in and do a death growl, and we started reaching out to people and wound up discovering uh, Matt Bashan. My, my wife knows Matt very well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we went and YouTubed Matt and heard him, and I thought, wow, this is perfect. Yeah, it, is. it just so happens that he's a local guy. He lives like 10 minutes from the studio we record at. Uh, so that worked out perfectly, you know. And he came in in 15 minutes' time, banged it out, and it sounds phenomenal. We were all high-fiving each other and having a party in the studio, and that was probably the funnest song for us to record on the entire album. Yeah, it really, you, you can feel the energy in it. Now, was that you doing the really high register vocals? That's in? me doing the okay. high register. So you're the Rob Halford of that song. And the, I'm the yeah. Rob Halford of that. And some people have even said, man, it would have been better if it didn't have a high voice. No, I, I, you know? I can't and, can't agree with that. But And, and you know, hey, I, we could have gone down that road, but it was interesting because we did the low voice first, do it to the cough, do it to the cough, you know. And it was great but it was just lacking some energy. Mm-hmm. So I added the high part, and then everyone was, you know, like, oh, wow, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's hit or miss. I mean, that's the kind of song where there's not going to be any middle ground. People are either going to love it or yeah. they're going to absolutely hate it. Yeah. Now, just out of curiosity, live, um, do you plan on trying to do both of those, or are you going to get maybe Oz or, or somebody to do the growl? How do you, because I can't imagine no, a human voice no, being able to we'll switch No, we'll do gears. away with the growl. I mean, yeah. it, you know, it, we're, we're not going to track the growls and right. play to a tracked growl or anything, and it'd be funny Oz standing up there faking it like he's yeah. doing it. Uh yeah, you just won't hear the, the, the low part, that's all. Oh, we'll call on the audience to do that for you. Now, exactly. Now, one of the things that I think often gets overshadowed with Striper, and, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, they hear the word Striper, they think Christianity, and, and that's a wonderful thing. But when I hear the name Striper, I think of just great guitar work. Um, because you guys, I, I think, sometimes get overlooked in, in the, you know, kind of the history of metal and rock is you know a really wonderful guitar team and this album uh, you know it just further cements that how do you guys you know break up what you do in the studio and in live you know between you and oz is there some sort of formula to it or not really it's really simple i mean once we start doing the songs and we start recording them uh keeper tracks Mm -hmm. the song really determines who's going to play it Usually, most of the time, it's both of us. Mm-hmm. It's a back and forth solo or a harmony solo, and that's the case probably, you know, uh, seven or eight times out of ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if there's a song that's real heavy or kind of crazy, that might be an Oz solo. Mm-hmm. Or if it's a song that's more melodic uh, and mid tempo, uh, straight ahead kind of thing, that might be a Michael solo. 
Okay. You know, because our styles are similar, but they are different. I'm a more more of a melodic player. Uh, you know, I write my solos more like a vocal almost, and Oz, Oz gets a little bit more crazy with his stuff. You know, a little more technical and effects and whammy and you right. know, that kind of stuff. And, and those are the differences in our styles. But then when we play together, we're very similar. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you when you approach soloing, do you kind of chart it up before you go into the studio and look at chord changes and think about you know what scales and things like that you're going to be using before you go out, or are you just a roll the tape and here's what sounds good to my ear as I'm doing it you know let's do 15 and see which one you sounds know, the best you know in terms of the parts the rhythm parts and the structure itself mm-hmm. I, I don't chart anything out because it's all in my head right because I'm, I'm the primary writer so when I write the song it, it once it's in there it's in there mm-hmm. you know and then I'll teach the guys and you know they're they're writing stuff out and charting stuff out Oz mm-hmm. and Rob and, and I'm just kind of going by ear okay and, and, and memory but when it comes time to do the solos, that's a different story. That's I'll actually take the songs, the bed, and the basic tracks home, and work out the solos, and then go back into the studio and then track them. Okay. Yeah, that's what you know. There's certain guys you know that just roll the tape and they'll spit out a solo, and you know the second one's the keeper or something like that. And then there, you know, there are people yeah, who will sit not, there. You know, we'll, Oz and I, neither one of us are like that. Yeah, that, we're, that's we're both we're both the kind of guys that have to work out our solos and mm-hmm. uh, or and want to work out our solos. Uh, the spontaneous stuff. I mean, I could do that, and I have done that before for other people mm-hmm. who have had me play guitar solos on their songs. And I just got in the studio and said, "All right, roll, you know, mm-hmm. go." And I don't prefer doing it that way because I feel like it, it's. I like what comes out of me when I give a little bit more thought to it okay. and put a little bit more time into it. Do you approach the solo much the way you would the vocal melody? I mean, do you sit and in, in, think of in terms of that? Like, you know, I want to kind of do this. I do. Over. Okay. I yeah. do. I do often. Absolutely. And a lot of my solos are uh, structured in a way where you could almost sing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and that's, you know, that, uh, that's an it, art form. It, it, yeah, it, it, it's it, it's it's just the way I've always written solos, uh, and and I usually try to start a solo where it builds, where it comes in and it it starts climbing that mountain, and then it gets to the top, and then bam, you know, there's yeah. some thunder up there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. End with a little fire or or what have you, and you know, I just try to make it make sense and and work, and almost like the same way as writing the song as how I approach a solo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, know, you think of kind of the classic, you know, the crazy train solo, you know, that anybody who's listened to it can sing the guitar solo, you know, you're in the, got the earbuds on and you're you're listening to it and you're just trying to sing the tapping and stuff like that, that's a, that's a exactly, great thing. Exactly, exactly, and, and there's something to be said, and not only trying to sing it, but it's very memorable, it mm-hmm. it, it goes in and it uh, stays in. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's Versus a, those solos where you can't remember what note the guy played a year later. Yeah. You come but out of but you still like it. You still yeah. like it. You know, <clears throat> I'm I'm more the kind of guy that likes to write those those memorable parts that are almost like a vocal and a melody, and mm-hmm. uh, it's just my style. I love yeah. some of my favorite players of all time: uh, John Sykes, yeah. Michael Schenker, mm-hmm. Randy Rhodes. You know, oh, and uh, they were all very melodic players, and, uh, and their solos were so memorable. Uh, especially guys like Mike, Michael Schenker, man, he's, he's yeah. probably my favorite of all time. Yeah, 
Now, as far as tone, you you have, I think, kind of a very distinct sound to your your guitar. You know, I think when you hear you, you know, you both of you play, uh, you know, you can almost tell it's a striper sound. Um, yeah. What is what is kind of the the commonality you and Oz have, you know, as far as to get that sound? Well, I mean, I, I tell you, I, I back in the day when I was, you know, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old, I really started seeking out my guitar tone mm-hmm. at an early age. That's my personality. I, I started playing when I was five, got real serious about it when I was twelve, and then. As once I heard the the first Boston album, uh, it really steered me in that direction to to find my own tone and mm. a, a great tone. So I started experimenting and trying all sorts of things. And later on in life, when I was you know seventeen and eighteen years old, I stumbled upon a Lab series uh, L11 head in a pawn shop, and I plugged it in and I loved it. <clears throat> it's solid state, but I loved it. And I I took it home. I bought it a couple hundred bucks. And then after a few days of experimenting, I came out of the preamp out of that <clears throat> into a Marshall. And that that was the striper tone birthed right then and there. So out of a solid and state was, and into a Marshall. <laughs> out of the solid state, because the Lab Series had a, a parametric EQ on it. Okay. So when I preamped into the Marshall, I was able to redefine the distortion Okay. with the parametric EQ. And did you and use like a JCM did, it, it, for the Marshall end of it? Uh, I had a, a four-input Marshall. I forget okay. which model it was exactly. Okay. But when I did that, <clears throat> and I went in inside and got my brother and said, "You got to hear this," and he came out and we both just stood, stood there saying, "Oh my God, that sounds amazing!" And then Oz, who was a friend of ours. Uh, it came over and I showed it to him and he was blown away and then we used to play with Rat at Kazari's all the time and I would mm-hmm. hide the lab series behind my Marshall and okay, secret and weapon it, yeah and Robin would come up to me after we would play and he'd say dude what are you using you know and it had yeah. this this really that half cock walk conk, 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 kind of striper tone and then I moved into a Furman PQ3 single space rack to lighten the load, mm-hmm. and we use that. That's what you hear on Soldiers, Tell the Devil, and God We Trust, all the albums. Okay. Yeah, and so then now I use a uh, Tech 21 Paradriver <clears throat> or their new dual band EQ. Okay. And we run that into the front end of a Mesa Boogie or a Marshall, and then live. I'm using my all-in-one box, which does the same thing, made by ISP, and it's that it's all about the pre-EQ and the way I run the pre-EQ. It gives it you either love it or you hate it, but it gives it that striper tone, and it's a mm-hmm. very definable, distinguishable tone. Okay, yeah, and it is. You know, that that's uh, that's really cool. So the ISP, that's the you're using the Michael Sweet model. Correct. It's the Michael Sweet model. Yeah, I love Buck and Shell, and he's basically the guy that built and started and ran Rocktron. Okay. Okay, and Buck, Buck started a new company called ISP, and they make something called a Theta Pro, T H E T A, and they make a Michael Sweet model, and it's the striper tone in a box, man. It's a digital all-in-one box. You plug into that thing, and boom. 
You go direct through a console, and it's the exact tone you're going to hear on our albums. Awesome. Yeah, so if anybody can get that, you see, you can buy that off the street right now. That's available. That's well, really yeah, and I mean, you, you know, some of it's, of course, in the, the picking technique in your hands certainly, and all certainly. that good stuff. But, I mean, it's for the most part, it's the striper tone. Awesome. Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much for your time again. You guys are going to be rolling into Warrendale on May 10th. Uh, Goddamn Evil will be available uh, middle of April. Uh, so it's a great time. Um, any other projects? I know you know. Last year you had a you know, solo release and you did an album with George Lynch. Anything else in the any other irons in the fire moment, or is this just 2018 just striper? Well, we, we're working on a documentary uh, throughout the year and next year as well, <clears throat> striper. And then we also, <clears throat> excuse me, we also have a uh, an acoustic album that we uh, are about three-quarters of the way finished with. we got to get Perry's bass on there and his vocals mm. and then mix it, and we'll release that hopefully at the end of this year. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to start work on a solo album and then start work also on an album with Joel Holkstra. Oh, okay. uh, we're going to begin writing at the end of the year and into next year. We're really excited about that. So there's a lot of stuff coming up, man, in the next yeah. few years. You found a week in Joel's schedule he has off. He's a busy, busy man. <laughs> Got to get it before He's a Christmas. Very busy man. You know, after share before Christmas and after David. You know, if you could fit yeah. a week in there. Um, the striper material is that going to be new new songs or is it going to be some reworkings of some classics? It's reworks of the classics acoustically, and it's just an awesome. interesting way and an interesting trans, uh, translation of those songs acoustically. We do acoustic sex on, sets on occasion, and they go over really well, and people love them. So we yeah. figured, hey, you know what? Let's do an acoustic album. Awesome. Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much, and we'll see you here in about a month, okay? All right, my friend. Thank you for your time, and it was a pleasure always talking to you, and I'll see you soon. Two of the biggest names in rock unite. Godsmack. Same stage. Same night. Shine down. August 28th. Key Bank Pavilion. Shine down. Godsmack. Tickets are on sale now at LiveNation.com. Part of the Bordis and Bordis Concert Series. All right, thank you to Michael Sweet. Again, they'll be at Jurgles uh, on the 10th of May. You can get tickets at uh, DruskyEntertainment.com or you can go to Jurgles' website and get those tickets now before they're sold out. We'll take our attention now to a guitarist out of Boston who's been around for quite a long time. Uh, he used to play with Peter Wolf. Uh, currently is the guitarist of the Yardbirds and as well as an instrumental solo guitarist uh, talking about Johnny A. And Johnny A will be doing a show, an Iron City Rock show, on May 24th at the Club Cafe here in Pittsburgh. A very intimate show that he talks about. Uh, it's just him, his guitar, and a couple effects pedals. Does a little bit of looping for backing tracks, but uh, certainly not a uh, computerized show by any stretch. So it'll be a really cool uh, show to, you know, if you're into great guitar that'd be a great night uh johnny's uh, obviously has got his own signature gibson guitar which we talk about in the interview and gibson doesn't give signature guitars to just anybody so uh, to speak to uh his talent even if you're not familiar with his work but let's play a little bit of uh, johnny a's music we'll get into that interview with him.
to welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have on the line Johnny A. How are you doing today, Johnny? Hey, John. Thanks for uh, checking in. My pleasure. You're going to be coming in to do a show at the Club Cafe, uh, a really cool intimate show on the 24th of May here. Uh, we wanted to give the folks a chance to, to hear what's going on with you. I know you had an album out a few years ago, Driven. Uh, you've been doing some stuff with the Yardbirds um, and uh, you know doing some solo shows here, which people are very excited about. Um, can you talk first, I mean, what what kind of material are you going to be doing in the um, the show coming up? Are you going to be doing some new material or, or mostly stuff off of Driven and older stuff? Actually, the um, what I'm doing, this solo thing that I'm kind of branded is just me and my guitars. It's uh, it's solo guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't have a band with me, but it's the, I'm using a lot of um, technology, so there's some looping involved and there's some uh, time-based effects that are uh, involved, but no pre-recorded tracks and no pre-recorded mm-hmm. samples or loops. Uh, it's all live without a net, and it's pretty much a uh, heavy emphasis on the British songbook of the 60s. It's, okay. You know, it's in celebration of uh, really my inspirations and my uh, influences growing up. I just kind of wanted to um, get back in touch with, you know, some of that musicality and, mm-hmm. you know, get to a solo guitar type of performance. And uh, I mean, I've done a couple dozen shows now. I've been doing this uh, for 2018. I started it in January. and. Okay. Um, you know, did a bunch of shows in New England, then a West Coast tour, then went out and did the Joe Bonamassa cruise, and then a few more uh, shows before I leave to go out with the Yardbirds. And then uh, basically in the middle of the two Yardbirds tour legs is that little break in May where I'm coming through Pittsburgh. So you you, um, you mentioned your influences. Um, can you speak to us who some of those were? I mean, I think you know some people can you can hear it's touches of things in your playing but I mean, who do you cite when you look back at the you know that kind of fruitful era of the 60s oh my god there's just so many of them i mean obviously uh paramount and all that is the beatles um mm. he, uh, you know very 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 big influence mm. uh, on me uh, i got to see them when i was a kid and um you know it was a wild experience you sure. know but any of the British invasion stuff, even earlier, you know, I mean, I was a big fan of the Everly Brothers, still am, and, mm-hmm. but um, Beatles, uh, Hollies, Stones, I mean, Animals, and all of that stuff. Right. Um, blues influences would be, you know, people like Little Willie John and, you know, Holland Wolf and, you know, Muddy Waters. and But, you know, I have a pretty eclectic... Um, very musical kind of taste, you know. They, they're all over the map. I mean, from like I said, Everly Brothers to Jude Cole to Chris Whitley to John McLaughlin and Robert Fripp and mm-hmm. you know Ken Burrell and Chet Atkins and Les Paul and then you know Jimi Hendrix back. You know all the all the usual su- suspects, but there would definitely be things in my iPod that people wouldn't. Um, consider me to be a fan of people like Jerry Rafferty and, and things like that. I'm just really a big, 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 huge fan of melody and arrangement and, and uh, you know, a well-crafted song. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great point. I think, you know, sometimes a great song cuts through regardless of how exactly it's presented. You know, if it's a great song played on lap steel, it's a great song, period. 
you know, or a great song known as blues, you know, that there's something, it's purest essence is a great song. And that's a it's well, well said. Um, as a guitarist, when you, when you approached, obviously you mentioned the Beatles, which, uh, you know, as far as melodies, harmonies, uh, you know, they're obviously an influence, I think on any one of that genre, but, um, were you particularly drawn to George as, as a guitar player, or was it just the fact that he was a cool guy with a guitar that kind of got you excited about them? Well, you know, um, my um, my initiation with the Beatles um, came after I was already started playing music because I was a drummer mm. first. Okay, and uh, so I was a drummer starting in uh, way before you know before the British invasion, and was into people like Sandy Nelson and Gene Krupa and Mm-hmm. you know uh, some of the surf bands and things like that but it when you know the Beatles hit in 63 really the the one that I was uh, particularly drawn to is John Lennon right. and and again it wasn't really because of the guitar playing it was really all about the melody and the emotion and the voice right. uh obviously his lyrical content was great but you know I just you know when I think of really the the music that um hits me the deepest and the longest lasting it's really not necessarily about a guitar player mm-hmm. it's really about the melody and the right. song and the arrangement and, and the production yes i like great guitar playing and uh and i'm a fan of some great guitarists whether like i said jeff beck or you know chad or west montgomery or any of these guys any of the greats um but I, I think um, it's really, I, I have to go back to say it's about the song. So, mm. I, you know, I think George Harrison was great. I think he was an extremely underrated guitar player. Mm-hmm. And he probably came into his own voice probably post-Beatles, you yeah. know, when he left the Beatles. And, you know, that's when he developed his his slide playing, which is so lyrical and so vocal. And... Um, you know, you, you don't ever think of George Harrison like that, but he's probably, you know, in my, you know, for my money, is one of the finest slide players. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a shredding type of slide, but it's no. it's definitely, you know, a vocal and a very emotive type of playing. Yeah, yeah, the slide is such an expressive form. You know, it's so hard to sound good and so easy to sound so bad um, <laughs> with a slide. You know, it's it's a always been a, a tricky thing and I admire people can play you know from you know you think of almonds and trucks and uh, some of the greats uh, it is is amazing um, can you talk just a little bit about how you became involved with the Yardbirds obviously is anybody who ever picked up a guitar um, you're stepping into some some big shoes you know in in that band um, can you talk a little bit about how how you kind of came into that role yeah, well, it's interesting when I said, like, my favorite band growing up all that, all that time was the uh, Beatles. You know, my mm-hmm. second favorite band would have to be the Yardbirds. And mm-hmm. um, I would, I have a lot of different stylistic approaches because I was, you know, grew up listening to, you know, Bill Connors from Return to Forever or John McLaughlin or, like I said, Robert Fripp or Steve mm-hmm. Howe or, you know, early Clapton, back mm-hmm. and all that stuff. But I would have to say that I attribute when I approach rock, or when I think rock blues, mm-hmm. I have to kind of cite the influence being heavy on the 65, 66 Yardbirds, which mm-hmm. is the Jeff Beck era, you know, when he was, sure. in the, he was in the band for like 18 months, I think, and uh, which was amazing because if you, you know, if you look at their catalog, all the hits pretty much came with Jeff Beck. 
yeah. and he was in there for a year and a half. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it was just something about the. Um, uh, I kind of lost sight of your your question there. I think, but um, oh, I was just I, curious how you personally came to be involved. Oh, like, you know, did you Yardbirds. Okay, mutual so, friends? You know, or? being a big fan and all that stuff, and then. I was on, uh, my first two albums were released on Steve I's record label, Favorite Nations Entertainment, mm -hmm. which was distributed by Sony, and um, the Yardbirds had put out an album, I think in 2003, called Birdland, and right. um, they were playing in Boston at the House of Blues, which is where I'm from. I had a night off, and I just went down introduced myself, went down to soundcheck, hung out, introduced mm -hmm. myself, they asked me to sit in, uh, and I did, and uh, it was a very natural thing, because I pretty much, even though I really never played any of their songs in any of my kid bands growing up, right. I was extremely familiar with the catalog, you know, um, so I sat in, I think I did, I don't know, maybe Shapes of Things, and Frank kept the rolling or something like that, mm -hmm. I can't remember, and then the label called me, and asked me if I would fly down to New York to sit in with them at BB King's, which I did. Hmm. And it was great. It was a sold out house and we had a great time. And so basically, you know, I got to know Chris and, and uh, Jim McCarty and the other guys too. And if if they came through town and I happened to not be on tour, I'd, I'd go say hi and occasionally sit in. And then about three years ago, well actually a little longer, almost four years ago, I had gotten a phone call um, to ask if I could do a tour with them. Um, Jim was putting together a, a different lineup, um, and I had to I had to decline because I had a, a West Coast tour already booked with my band. I couldn't do it. The dates were right on top of their dates, um, so I couldn't do it. And then that tour ended up getting canceled anyway for some reason or another. They they actually um, I think uh, pegged. Real slick to do the um, tour, but something happened and the tour never went off. Okay. And when they went to reschedule the tour again, I got a phone call again to do it. And I I was just in the middle of trying to put a Midwest tour together <laughs> for my act, but I was able to. There was only a couple confirmed shows and a bunch of holds, so I was able to call the promoters and and uh, they were very. Gracious about letting me out for the opportunity. So I've I've been playing with the Yardbirds ever since. It's about, about three years now. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you guys had a um, uh, crowd-funded uh, program to do a new album. Is there something in the works, or, or is there any update on where that recording might be? Well, yeah, that right now that project got shelved. There was a okay. lot of stuff going on with, um, you know, Jim had a book coming out and. Uh, he had a solo album coming out, and there was also Jimmy Page released that Yardbird 68 album. So there right. was a lot of stuff that was going to be happening, and really we had scheduled for the album, had we done it, to come out really now, April, which is right on top of his book, right on top of his solo album. Right. And as you know, Yardbird 68 got released maybe about two months ago or so. So I just think that Jim had so much going on that... Um, it Time just wasn't right. Not right, you know. Right. Um, uh, I don't know if we'll pick it up. If you know what's going to happen, I mean, I'll see the guys in a couple of weeks because mm -hmm. we go out on May third. 
Right. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, you know, obviously you've had a, um, a Gibson custom signature guitar for quite a while. Um, you know, is, is yeah, a, it's celebrating its 15th anniversary this year. Yeah, I mean, just a beautiful guitar. Can you just talk a little bit about what it is like to look down at the headstock and see your name, you know, on a Gibson guitar? I mean, that you know, so many players will play the Les Paul, which is, you know, obviously based on Les's design and Stratocasters, but to look down and be holding, you know, a, the creme de la creme, you know, really of guitars, um, what does that feel like? Does that still get it you know does that still every once in a while kind of blow your mind yeah i mean you know if i think about it absolutely uh it's an incredible honor um it's an you know it's an incredible achievement you know it was really nothing i ever aspired to Mm -hmm. but um my uh relationship with the gibson custom shop started in 1994 when i was working with peter wolf from the jay giles band right and uh, I picked up an endorsement with Gibson Custom. And, um, you know, I hit it off with the guys there, Mike McGuire, Rick Gembar, you know, all the people that were there at the custom shop at the time. And my wolf thing, you know, that thing ended around 1998 or so, um, after about seven years. And that's when I made my first solo album, the Sometime Tuesday Morning album. I initially put it out independently, then it got picked up by Vi's label, mm-hmm. and um, it made a lot of noise. You know, that record did very well. I had a number one uh, single across the country. It sold over 100,000 copies. There was I was touring all the time, and mm-hmm. it was, as you know, it was instrumental music, and the guitar was the tone of the, was the voice of, of me. It wasn't right. my singing, it was my guitar. And um, Gibson started making I was using you know I'll digress a little bit on that record I used a bunch of different guitars big hollow body guitars a bunch of different guitars mm-hmm. and they were presenting issues for live you know because the big hollow body guitars will feed back because I still played it in massive volume um, so when I went down there um, they they made me some uh, historic 59 Les Pauls with Bigsby's on them because Bigsby was Tailpieces was kind of one is kind of one of my things, and mm-hmm. and they weren't making those guitars with Bigsby's for anybody. Actually, I probably got the first three, and uh, I just started using them. And then uh, a couple of years later, when I was down at a summer Nam show event with Gibson, they asked me how the um, you know how I was digging the Les Pauls, and I said, well, you know, it's very very hard to find fault with that design. It's a it's a tried and true guitar. It's a fantastic guitar. I said, but you know, I'm a little. I really am missing a little bit of my hollow tone and live and you know it's kind of a, a thing that I like and uh, so they asked me if I had any ideas and if I'd be interested in developing a guitar with them and uh, that's how it started oh, that's wonderful that's it's got to be a treat you know I think and, uh, you know and to, to, build. Rest, to, to answer the second part of your sure. question it, it's definitely a pinch me moment. I mean, uh, is I don't you know 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 how. Obviously, it they wanted to do it. You know, you don't schmooze your way into a deal like that because those kind of projects have to get green lit. You know, green lighted right. all the way up the pole. And uh, so I really feel honored to be in a in a uh, in a club with people like you know Les Paul and Chet Atkins and Tal Farlow and Wes Montgomery and Joe Perry and Jeff Beck and. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Page and Peter Frampton. It's 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 an amazing 
kind of honor and club to be involved with, to be honest with you. Yeah, and, and to have it, you know, man, you mentioned 15 years later, so it wasn't just a, a flash in the pan because you were Peter Wolf's guitarist or, you know, any one particular, you know, no, actually, role, it, you know, uh, you know to last this long. Yeah, getting the signature deal had nothing to do with my involvement with Peter Wolf because that mm. came after Peter Wolf. Um, sure. But, um, you know, the guitar is, is the second best-selling signature model in their line behind the Les Paul. Mm -hmm. And Epiphone just released a version last summer of the guitar, you know, so it's a little bit more price conscious for sure. people that can't afford the Gibson Custom because it's very expensive. Mm -hmm. And uh, Epiphone has done a fantastic job with the guitar. And, yeah. um, I'm, you know, I'm really excited. You know, we're, yeah. we're, we're, in, we're in talks about maybe doing some kind of a commemorative 15th anniversary thing for the guitar, you know, re reintroducing it and maybe doing a special limited run of it, you know, sure. we'll see. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Johnny, I want to thank you so much again. You're doing a show at the uh, Club Cafe on the 24th. Uh, should be really cool. You you know, you mentioned using some technology of looping and things like that. That always makes for a really cool, really intimate uh, performance. So we look forward to seeing you when you get into Pittsburgh, man. Yeah, and it's 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 balanced. It's not all like heavy looping and mm -hmm. you know, Jammy stuff. It's 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 some beautiful, you know, uh, solo guitar pieces, and some songs have a lot of looping, and some songs don't have any. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if anybody likes the sound of a pretty guitar, you know, try to make it out there. I haven't been to Pittsburgh in a while, maybe maybe two years, I think. I don't know. Well, that's so fantastic. Look forward to coming back. It's a nice little room there. Yeah, we look forward to having you back in. We want to thank you for your time today, man. All right, John. Thank you so much. See you soon. All right. A thank you to Johnny A. Again, he'll be on uh, at Club Cafe on the 24th of May. And also uh, Striper, it's the top of the show. Michael Sweet and company will be at Jurgles on the 10th of May. So two great shows coming into Pittsburgh. There are literally dozens and dozens of great concerts coming into the city of Pittsburgh over the next few months. Um, if you're interested in seeing live music, uh, you know, a lot of times we like to make sure that these tours come to Pittsburgh. They certainly all are this summer, so please make your plans to get out and see as much music as you can. Help the uh, local music scene. You know, By you going to shows, that puts the um, information in the promoters' heads that people will pay to see these rock shows, pay to see these instrumental guitars, pay to see the jazz, the blues, whatever it is you like. They bring more in. You know, it's, it's a cyclical thing. If you don't go and they can't afford to bring these artists into town. So um, it's it's a win-win to come out and see music. Unfortunately, the days of paying 12 bucks to get a, an album from an artist and them living in mansions because of it are, are kind of over. Unfortunately, it's, it's become a very much a, a t the touring has become a necessity for musicians. So it's kind of incumbent upon us to get out there and support them and what they do. So I'd like to invite you to do that. Also, if you're listening to the show in the western Pennsylvania area, we very much appreciate you taking the time to go over to the Pittsburgh City Papers website. You can find a link on our Facebook page. Uh, they're doing nominations for the local annual awards, and there is a category this year for Best Local Podcast. We would very much appreciate your nomination for Iron City Rocks. Help us get the word out uh, to the audiences um, that maybe aren't aware of us. Uh, let the local uh, papers know that people are interested in music uh, and that content like Iron City Rocks uh, is enjoyed by more people than uh, you know they, they're aware of you know there's obviously a lot of sports podcasts Pittsburgh's a very rich sports tradition and a lot of other different types of podcasts but when it comes to music there's you know not a ton of uh, material out there on the internet for Pittsburgh music so we 
uh, would really appreciate your support in that endeavor and helping get out the word. So until next time, we want to thank you for listening. You can visit us at ironcityrocks.com. We're on all the social medias or all forward slash Iron City Rocks, or you can email us at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Until next time, we thank you for listening. (laughs) 